invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 2. We return to our essential series. Ephesians chapter 2 this morning for the next two weeks will be planted on the subject of church and trying to understand what is the church. Ephesians chapter 2 this morning, beginning with the 11th verse. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, by, what, by which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has taken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the wall, the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The word of the Lord. I don't know how many of you have ever considered your life before to be like a puzzle piece. Have you ever thought of yourself as a puzzle piece? If you take a, a piece of a puzzle and you find one laying around the house, it becomes pretty much an all-out scramble to do what? Find the puzzle that the puzzle piece belongs to. Because a puzzle piece alone is pretty much useless. We would all pretty much agree that a puzzle piece belongs where? Where does a puzzle piece belong? In the puzzle. And if the puzzle piece is not in the puzzle, the puzzle piece is pretty much useless, or you could say the puzzle piece hasn't really fulfilled its perfect thing that it was created to be. It has not found its purpose. A puzzle piece belongs in a puzzle. You and I, as human beings, we were created not to be alone, but we were created to belong to one another. You could say, in a sense, that we are like puzzle pieces. That if we remain alone, disconnected from one another, we do not bring to fruition our complete fulfillment. We don't understand or comprehend our complete purpose as human beings, and more as followers of Jesus Christ. You see, this morning what we hear from Ephesians chapter 2, and very easy summary, is that you and I belong to one another. You and I, who once were far off from God, alienated by God, that when we are made to bring back to peace with God, what happens is, is not only are we brought back to God, but we're brought back to a community, that we are made one with one another, that we were not saved to just continue to be an individual Christian, but we were saved to be part of the people of God. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. It's actually a contradiction of what it means to be a Christian. For to be a Christian is to be in community. Because the moment you're proclaimed a Christian, you're automatically proclaimed 
to be in the body of Christ. We see in Ephesians chapter 2 that you were once alienated, but then you're made one with the people of God. So it's not just coming to God, but it's also coming to the people of God, which takes us to our non-negotiable today. And our non-negotiable today is that in Christ, we are united with others under the authority of Jesus. In Christ, we are united with others under the authority of Jesus. In other words, that the moment we're united to Jesus, the moment we express faith in Christ, we are automatically united together with other people, other followers of Jesus, into one body, and that body exists under the authority of Jesus. Or in very simple terms, you cannot go it alone. You cannot go it alone. We were created to be dependent upon one another. Now this is goes completely against the majority of us, right? The majority of us are what? Pull up your bootstraps, personal responsibility, take care of yourself. There's nothing wrong with personal responsibility. I'm not arguing that you should quit your job and be dependent upon someone else at all. No. We are called to work and be responsible with what God has given us, but at the same time, we are created to be dependent upon one another because we're created to be in this body, this temple, this community. We are created to be united with other people so that when we come to faith in Christ, we're united with other people. And the way that this is described in Ephesians chapter 2, if you turn with me there, is there's a variety of different images used to give us a picture of what is it that we're united to. What is this new assembly of people? And if you look with me in Ephesians chapter 2, and we look down at verse 19, we see a couple of different images. So the first image we see is that it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So the first image is fellow citizens. So in other words, we're united in a new nation. We're united to be citizens of a new kingdom. So the first image of the church is one of a kingdom, a a citizenship. So the moment we come to faith in Christ, our unity is in the fact that we are Christians. In a sense, it's a new race. It's a new culture. That's the image used. And that image raises up a variety of things. When you live together in a nation... What do you kind of get united by? Patriotism. The fact that we're in the United States of America, what unites us is our common citizenship, the common values of what it means to be an American. So to be a citizen in the family of God, we unite around the values of the nation, the people of God. We're united as citizens in God's people. So we're citizens in the kingdom of God, and then we're citizens of the United States. But first, our citizenship is in God's kingdom, and we're with one another in that kingdom. The second illustration used is in the same verse, 19, and it says, we are now members of the household of God. So now it goes, it's getting one step more serious now. We're all citizens of the same country. You kind of feel a loose affiliation with fellow citizens, but now it says, you are members of the same family. Throughout Scripture, we see the terms brother and sister used all the time. Brother in Christ, sister in Christ. Well, the reason that that's used is that when we come to faith in Christ, we are actually brought into a new family. That the bounds of our natural family are actually broken. And this, again, goes completely against our culture. 
that according to the Bible, you are just as responsible for your sister in Christ as you are for your natural sister. We are in a whole new family. Jesus in the Gospels gave an interesting message. The people came up to him and they said, hey, your mother and your family's here. And Jesus says, who? Who's my mother? Who's my brothers and sisters? And then he finishes by saying, those who obey the word of the Lord. The household of God has the exact same position, if not a greater position, than our natural families. That we're supposed to be a family as the people of God, that we've got that deep of a connection with one another. That's what you've been called. You are the household of God. That's how God sees you. God sees you as brothers and sisters with one another. And now we've got the image of a father, the father who's in charge of the family. And the citizenship, you've got the king. The king's in charge. The family, the father's in charge. And so we're the body of Christ. We're the family members. Jesus is the father. We're the citizens in the kingdom. Jesus is the king. And now we get another image. If you would look at me again at Ephesians chapter 2. Now it goes one step further. Verse 21. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So now the image for who we are is a building. You and I are a building, but a living building. Now when you think about a brick in a building, how much is one brick dependent upon all the other bricks? Completely. You, you can't have a building with one brick. And if you start pulling bricks out, what happens? The structure loses stability. You and I are joined together. We're, like, we're supposed to be like bricks in a building. That's how close we're supposed to be. Dependent upon one another. And together we make something stronger. Notice the interesting thing about this passage of Scripture is that it's written as though this has already happened. It's written in the sense of this is who you are. It's saying, hey, you are citizens. You are the household of God. You are being built into a new household a new structure. So this is how God sees us. This is our identity. Our identity is that we're not individuals, but we're created in this community. So the question then becomes, are we going to make it function in reality? Is what God proclaims to be true going to be the functional reality in our lives? Are we going to function as family members with one another? Are we going to function as interdependent bricks with one another? To build a stronger structure. And now look with me, if you would, at the structure illustration. Who's in charge in the structure? Verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, most of my do-it-yourself projects have not gone very well. One of the reasons the do-it-yourself projects haven't gone very well is who likes to take the time to make sure everything is level, Right? I want to run the 18-volt cordless drill. Let's just put the screws in, right? Well, it wasn't that long ago, that, as I said last week it was, I put a new door in the house, right? What do you got to do? How hard is it? Take the door out, tear it out. They, they come pre-hung. All you got to do is slide it in, a couple of screws, you're good to go, right? Wrong. <laughs> now the door, you can. <laughs> I'm just giving away how you can get into our house. Now you can just walk up to the back door and push it open. Thing, unless the deadbolt is locked. 
The door handle can be locked, but you can still just push it open. What should have happened? Well, one is I probably shouldn't have done it myself. But on a grander scale, should have used a level. Just because it's pre-hung doesn't mean that it's going to be perfect. You've still got to get it level. More than that, you've got to get it square. And if it's not level and it's not square, you can have the nicest pre-hung door that they sell at your local hardware store. It don't matter. The same is true in the church. You can have the nicest church model around. You can buy all of the latest and the greatest books. You can have the greatest band. You can have the best pastor. You can have all of that stuff. But unless you have the cornerstone, unless you have the foundation, you've got nothing. It may appear that, wow, things look pretty good. If you drove up to our house right now and looked, you'd say, that's a nice back door. You start to look a little harder and you start to play a little bit, not a nice back door because we don't have it square. And the church, the people of God, the family of God, the structure is completely dependent upon what? The cornerstone. If you read about a cornerstone, you quickly learn that the cornerstone directs everything about the structure. If you want a square structure, it's dependent upon the cornerstone. And the cornerstone for the people of God, the cornerstone for the church, is Jesus Christ. That we have to be sure that we're faithful to Him in order to be successful. You see, in each of these images that's used to describe our life as a community, nation, there's a king, family, there's a father, structure, there's a cornerstone. In each of those images, there's also a source of authority that goes along with it. Now, let's go one image further that's not used in this passage, but is used in Ephesians chapter 4 and also 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That is the image of the body. Maybe you've heard before the church called the body of Christ. That's how the Apostle Paul calls the church. He says, you are the body of Christ. And again, the image of what? Being connected with one another. The finger is no good without the arm. All of it depends upon what? The head. The head has to send instruction down to the rest of the body. So as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and other places, who's the head of the body? Jesus is the head of the body. So again, the image we get is one of interdependence where everything working together makes for a greater outcome, but at the exact same time as each image also gives us a clear picture that there needs to be authority. Now, this message is completely countercultural and also goes against us as individuals because all of us here like to be lone rangers for the most part. Kind of keep your distance, we'll take care of ourselves. That's the first problem. We don't want to be in community as much as we should. Second problem, most of us don't like authority. (laughs) We don't like being told what to do. Well, the image of what God has said should be true of us as his followers, first, that we should be in community, and secondly, that we should be under authority, go directly against what we fight against the majority of the time. We need to recognize this, that we are swimming upstream that we're, we're pushing against our sinful nature here to allow ourselves to enter into community with one another and also allow ourselves to come under the authority of Jesus. And this is a big thing for us, that if we can understand that we are no longer individuals, but we are a community, and that community is directed by what? 
by Jesus. How do we usually direct our communities? If you're part of a club, what do you do? Well, let's get some people together. Every person's got to vote. Take a vote, and then whatever the group decides is best, that's what we do, right? So, for example, when I was in college and high school in Alden, Minnesota, we had a golf course that was there. The golf course was there. It was kind of a private, not a country club, but kind of a private course. You could buy a piece of stock for $25. Okay, it was $25 forever. So you'd buy this piece of stock in the golf course for $25. That gave you membership into the organization. You'd show up once a year and what? You'd vote. You'd say, okay, hey, it'd be nice if we had a sand trap on number seven. What does everybody think of a sand trap on number seven? And somebody would say, oh, I'm always in the sand. Who wants another sand trap? Blah, blah, blah. And then another person would say, yeah, we need to make it harder. Next thing you know, you've got a little bit of argument. Then what do you do? Well, let's just vote on this and get it done with, right? All right, who wants to have the sand trap? Well, usually what won at the end of the day was what? Who had the most elegant argument and who had the most fluent speaker at the meeting? And then you got 51%. What do you do? Build the sand trap. This is the way most of us run our organizations and our communities, right? Because what? It's democracy. Democracy is a great thing. It's an amazing gift. We should treasure it. But the church was not created to be a democracy. The church was not created to get together and say, hey, what does everyone think? Let's see what idea is a good idea. Let's vote on it and let's go with that. The church was created to be under the authority of Jesus. And that's why if you read the New Testament letters, there's strict conditions about who can be in place of authority in a local church. Why was that? Why did they have the line so high? Well, the reason they had the line so high is because those people were making decisions for the church. And they wanted people who were faithful to Jesus because Jesus was the one they wanted them looking to instruction for. And so they wanted people who were seeking Jesus and had evidence of being faithful to Jesus because that was the structure of authority. And for us today, that's a challenge. That when we're making decisions, the first place we look is not going, hey, well, what's everyone think? How's everyone going to think about this? The first place we should look is say, what does Jesus say about this? What would Jesus have us do? And then we say, how do we communicate that decision to everyone else? Now, I'm not saying, don't hear me saying, well, hey, hey, they're just going to do whatever they want and then go. No. Listen to what Jesus is saying and then go back to the community of people and say, hey, this is what we believe Jesus is leading us to do. Here's why. Here's where we're going. And that's it. That's where we're going. And after we get going, if people discern that, hey, that's not God's will, well, that's why you have a congregational government set up where you have an opportunity to vote to say, the people we've put in place don't seem to be making godly decisions. Let's put someone else in place. But the whole point is, look to Jesus first and then decide how do we best express that vision from Jesus to the community that Jesus has given us, rather than look to the community first, and then what? God, we pray that you would bless our plans. How often have we done that? Guilty as charged, right? How often have we done that in our personal lives? Well, we're going to do this. God, I pray that you would bless our new adventure here as we do this as a family. <laughs> oh, backwards thing. 
God first, then, God, I want to bless you through this. It would change our prayer life greatly if we stopped saying, God bless us, and we started praying, God empower us to bless you. We're not asking God's blessing upon our plans. We're asking for a revelation of God's plans and then hoping that he would empower us so that we can bless his name through the plans. It takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of courage, and it takes a lot of faith. But each image that God has set up is that's the way it's to be, that we're in community with one another. Each of us is a piece to the puzzle. We've got to have each piece in the puzzle so that we're connected with one another. But there's a chief cornerstone, Jesus himself. There's a head to the body, Jesus. There's a father to the family, Jesus. There's a king of the nation, Jesus. In each instance, we look to the authority and we say, Jesus, you direct our community. Jesus, you're the source of our unity and you're the source of authority. Let me say that again. Write this down if you're taking notes today. Jesus, you're the source of our unity. Jesus, you are the authority. The reason that we're united together is not because we all like to do the same things. That's what a hobby club is for. So we're not united around work. That's you go to your workplace. You're united around what you do. We're united around Jesus. Jesus is the basis of our unity. And he's also our authority. So what's the practical application? If we're going to live in light of the truth that in Christ we are united with one another under the authority of Jesus, what's the practical application? First practical application today is this, and it's the most difficult of all. That's reconcile with one another. As I said earlier, what God is proclaiming in Ephesians 2 is he's saying he already sees us as one body. He sees us as family members. It's a stated reality Now it has to become a functional reality. It's unacceptable for us as followers of Christ to have barriers between one another in the church. We have to be reconciled to one another. And you know what? Family life gets a little dirty. Have you noticed that? Because the family's made up of sinful people. So what's going to happen? Mistakes are going to be made. Something's not going to somebody's going to misspeak something to you. Someone's going to miss something. You're going to do something to offend someone else because the structure is made up of sinful people. But what do we have to do? We have to reconcile with one another. Many, many years ago, many years ago, we were on a camping trip, and I think I've told this story before, camping trip with a couple of young, wild kids from the youth group back in the day. We're driving back from Nebraska, and we stop at McDonald's, get something to eat, and get going full bore. We get home and drop the kids off with their thing. Weeks later, my car just reeks. Just reeks. So I finally start, what's going on here? Start looking around. Lift up the back mat under the back seat. What? There's a chocolate shake just peeled to the carpet and to the placemat. Thinking, well, what's going on? I don't ride in the back seat. Well, then it popped in my mind. Ah, so-and-so was riding in the back seat. So who does? I drive over to his house, take out the car mat, Hey, buddy, come on out and clean the back seat of the car. The car just reeked. It festered for weeks in heat. You know what? This is how we usually handle our relationships in the church. Something goes wrong, what do we do? I'm not going to deal with it. 
I'm, I'm going to avoid them. Not only am I going to avoid them, but I'm going to try and talk about something else whenever something comes up. I'm just going to leave it on the back. So what happens? Just festers. Just keeps boiling. And then when it comes to fruition, it just blows everything up. It hurts more than just those who were initially involved. When in reality, we should have taken care of it right away. Again, this is not to say, oh, do wrong. This is we need to reconcile when wrong is done. We need to have it out. The oneness needs to be a functional reality, not just a stated goal. Reconcile with one another, and that's a hard thing. You may not even know that you've offended someone, but someone is hurt, and if they come to you, you need to be in a position of forgiveness, in a position of saying, yes, let's become one together. The second practical application is this, is that we need to pray for and challenge our leaders to follow Jesus. You need to be praying for the leadership of the church. You need to be praying for the leadership of all churches that they would be faithful to Jesus and that you need to challenge the leaders to do that then. You need to get in a leader's face and you need to say, hey, what do you hear Jesus saying to this group of people and what are you going to do about it? You need to challenge the leaders to be faithful to Jesus and pray that they would remain faithful to Jesus. We don't need to make sure that our leaders are getting done what we want done. We need to make sure that our leaders are being faithful to Jesus. So you can pray and challenge our leaders. And the third is this. We need to learn interdependence. Now, this is where it gets messy. Really messy. Because the only way to learn interdependence is to have a little bit of vulnerability. This is not vulnerability for the sake of vulnerability. Hey, let's get in a circle and everybody share thing. This is vulnerability for the sake of healing. This is vulnerability so that we can be refined and encouraged, so that we can operate at full speed. We need to be transparent with one another. Someone needs to have the license to hunt in your life. Have you given anyone the license to hunt in your life? Does a friend have the license to come into your life and do whatever they want? Someone needs to have a license to come into your life and check your checkbook at any time. Whoa, hold on. You just crossed the money line. Someone needs to have a license at any moment to come into your life and say, hey, your calendar's a little off base. Does someone have a license to hunt in your life? To come into your life and refine you? so that you can be healthy, so you can help other people. We need to learn interdependence. A brick is only as strong as the rest of the wall. A single brick doesn't get the job done, but bricks together make for a wall. A finger alone doesn't get the job done, but a finger and a knee and a foot, stomach, a whole body gets the job done. We need to be healed individually so that we can work together corporately for the good of the body of Christ. This morning, you are a piece to a puzzle. The puzzle is God's people, is God's kingdom. Outside of God's kingdom, you cannot find joy and peace and purpose. But you can find joy, peace, and purpose when you do what you were created to do, and that's to be one with other people in a new nation, in a new family, in a new structure, in a new body.
Let's join together in community with one another. Let's reconcile. Let's deal with the past hurts. Let's pray for our leaders to be faithful to Jesus Christ. Let's challenge our leaders to walk by faith, not common sense or logic. And let's be transparent with one another so that we can be healed, so that we can go out and help others. In Christ, we are united to one another under the authority of Jesus. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the church. God, thank you for uniting us to other people. Thank you that you have not left us alone. And this morning, God, I pray for each person in this room, that you'd give each person in this room a, another follower to be a friend with, another follower to be a family member with. God, I pray that you would strengthen relationships in this church. God, I pray that you would reconcile us to one another. We pray for our leaders. God, capture us with the words of Jesus. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you keep us faithful to Jesus above all else. God, thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for this community. Thank you for this family. In Jesus' name, amen.